Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. You're listening to the Alonement Podcast. I'm your host, Francesca Spector, and this show is all about your longest and most important relationship, the one you have with yourself. It doesn't matter if you're single, married, or somewhere in between. Alonement means valuing your time alone, regardless of your romantic status. Each week, I ask a new guest about the time they spend by themselves and why it matters. My guest this week is journalist and author, Porna Bell. It, to me, has become this touchstone of whenever I'm getting into a new relationship or I'm forming new friendships or even deciding whether, you know, to go to an event or to try something new, being alone is the comparison point to that. Porna Bell is a multi-award winning journalist, the former global head of lifestyle at Huffington Post and a twice published author, which would make her sound all sorts of intimidating, except Porna is known as much for her relatability, honesty and work around mental health as she is for her incredible success. She's someone whose career I've followed as long as I've been in journalism. Partly yes because of her high-flying roles, but also because of how much her writing has struck a chord, including her own personal journey towards learning to value self-knowledge and spending time alone. In her second book, In Search of Silence, Porna writes, In the spaces of silence, we finally hear a voice that is our own. in the spirit of honesty, you have been one of my dream guests ever since I came up with the idea for this podcast. So thank you so much for agreeing to be on the first series. Thank you for having me. I wonder when I say the word alone to you, what does that mean? I think that for me, the word alone just means balance. So it's basically about not being sad or not being happy about being in your own company, but just feeling really still and kind of quiet and balanced within yourself. And for me, I realise it's different for everyone, but it's got very positive associations. And for me, there are very clear distinctions between being alone and loneliness. So the age-old conversation, alone versus loneliness, do you think that they're states of mind you can feel on the same day or is it more that certain periods of your life are lonely whereas other times it just feels like you're alone 
I mean, I guess it really depends on what your own situation is. So I think that for me, I've just found that this idea of being alone is something that you do if if you don't have any other option. So basically, it's it's viewed as kind of a default state rather than something that you might actively choose for yourself, but actually seek out at various points. And for me, being alone is something that in recent years, I have really needed to have in my life. And that's whether or not I'm dating someone, whether I've been in a relationship. It's something that actually I've found is really critical to centering myself. And I think that the older I get, the more important it becomes. And it becomes this thing that is actually, it just gets stronger. So what that means is rather than it just being, you know, um, a word to describe what you're currently doing or how you currently are at that point in time it to me has become this touchstone of whenever I'm getting into a new relationship or I'm forming new friendships or even deciding whether you know to go to an event or to try something new being alone is the comparison point to that so is it that this new thing whether it's a relationship or a friendship is bringing something new and different and good into my life because I already know that I can be on my own and I can enjoy my own company and be okay within that. So anything else that then comes into my life off the back of that is something that adds to it. It's not something that I'm just seeking out because I'm afraid to be alone. Sure. So it's like the icing on top of the cake rather than the cake itself. Yeah. And it also, I think it allows me to just make more considered choices about the type of people that I do want to spend my time with and and so on. And actually that for me has been a real learning in the last few years of that being something that actually can be really empowering and also just means that you've got a bit more positivity and a lot less toxicity in your life. So is that something you've always had, that sense that time with other people needs to be balanced with time alone? No, definitely not. I mean, I don't think that thinking about being alone or, you know, actively carving out time to be alone, um, it's something that I don't think I was even aware of. And I think that, um, you know, in the way that you go from you know being in your family home being at school to uni where you're just hanging out with loads of people just all the time and then going from uni into flat shares and so on and I don't think that I ever really gave it much thought I didn't really actively say actually do I want to do x y and z or do I need to make sure that I've got time for myself on the weekend I would just react to whatever was going on and whoever would invite me out and so on I think it's just that in recent years where I've realized that actually I am probably nowhere near as sociable as I used to think that I was and that actually there are things and benefits that I get from being alone which I just would not have gotten through being with another person or being in the company of another person that I but I've gotten into those scenarios because of situations where I found it slightly unbearable being around a lot of people at the time so I don't think that the root of how I kind of figure that out is necessarily the standard way But it was just one of those things of realising that I found people quite difficult to be around, that I needed my own space, and then I went about seeking that out. So what were those situations when you realised that you needed to spend more time by yourself? I think that, for me, so a lot of this obviously stems with, um, so I used to be married, and my husband passed away about five years ago, and 
after he passed away, there was a lot that I found really difficult about being in other people's company. And I think that there's a very clear distinction between, you know, hiding away or just staying at home and not really confronting your reality, which is, you know, carrying on around you regardless. This was more along the lines of that I was finding it quite hard to navigate the, the sort of the changing nature of my grief and how what that looked like, you know, as the months and years passed. But I found that when I was discussing things with other people, or even when people were talking to me about things that were going on in their own lives, that I felt that the proximity of them didn't really help things. And it it did kind of one of two things, really, which was the first was that I felt like I just didn't fit in with any of my um, older friendship circles and my workplace and so on. And the second thing was just that I don't think anyone explicitly said it to me, but I did feel that there was a pressure of where I should be at a certain point in, in grieving. And so I think all of that combined just made me feel like I just kind of wanted to be away from all of it. And I just wanted to be able to see how I would think and what I would do if I didn't have this kind of constant noise of other people's conversation and even the stuff that people don't say, like, you know, the sort of the nonverbal stuff and how I would feel about myself and my grief and what my future looked like and so on. And that actually, that changed me. And that was a really important thing to, to do. What you're saying reminds me of what the radio presenter Joe Good told me when she was on the podcast which is that when her partner, who was known on the radio as Big George because he was a fellow presenter, when he passed away, then she realised that she needed to spend more time by herself than she previously had. And as well as that being a retreat and part of grief, it was also a regenerative time and something that she needed to help process what had happened. Did you find that the people close to you found it hard to understand why you needed that time alone while you were grieving? Yeah, I think people were definitely worried. Um, and I think that, you know, I don't think I really gave my friends and family enough credit for the fact that I think that they were looking on or looking at me um, in a very loving protective way, but they didn't necessarily smother me with, you know, their um, their concern. But I know that when, so this became really the basis for my second book, um, In Search of Silence, which was just that I quit HuffPost and decided to go traveling for about eight months, seven to eight months. And part of that travel involved going to New Zealand for about three months, which is where Rob passed away and where I still have, you know, a very close relationship with my in-laws but even though I was staying with some of my in-laws, um, there was a lot of travel in and around that I wanted to do on my own. So the the most memorable, incredible time for me was when I did a trip by myself to the South Island driving around for about 10 days. And I think people were worried because that the part of the coast that I'd chosen was really remote, which is why I'd chosen it. <laughs> and... Um, and also, you know, it, it was just one of those things where I don't think I was just, I wasn't really communicating uh, hugely with people back home and because I just felt I was going through something and I was doing something and I didn't really want to have to be on WhatsApp all the time. Um, but for me, it was just 
something that I had to go through and something that I had to experience. And it was wonderful. And I think that when I came back, I remember my sister just saying, you just seem different in a good way. Like you just sort of put down something really heavy or at least part of something that's really heavy and things are just a bit lighter for you. And she was absolutely right. And I think that, I mean, the irony of, you know, a conversation talking about being alone is you do need other people around you to reflect your personal changes. And if she hadn't said that, I, I may have been aware of it on some kind of subconscious level, but I think her actually voicing it um, felt really powerful to me. And it made me just own that that change a lot, a lot better. Um, but having said that, when I went most recently to New Zealand, um, so, you know, fast forward two years from this sabbatical that I went on, it was a very different mindset. And I did toy with the idea of going away for a few days and being on my own. And I just really didn't want to. It's not that I was afraid of being alone. I just didn't need that particular type of solitude in the same way. And that was actually a really wonderful thing to note because it just showed how far I have come from where I was two years ago in terms of grieving and healing and all of that stuff. So it all comes back to that balance that you spoke about. It's balancing what you get from time with other people compared to time with yourself. Yeah, and I I mean, I think that it's, it's definitely about balance, but it's also, I think, about recognising that there's no sort of like, here are five points or ten points of, you know, how to be alone and why this is right for you. Because I think that what's right for me in one year is definitely not going to be right for me in a year or two years time. And the idea of being alone for sure is something that I will probably always have and always really um, nurture and gravitate towards. But the way in which I do that changes. And I think that sometimes, you know, sort of expecting the same outcome in terms of, you know, like, let's say going on a trip or, I don't know, going to the cinema on your own one day or something like that. And if it, if the experience wasn't great, doesn't mean that those things are bad in itself. It just means that maybe mentally that's just not where you're at and that's not how you want to be alone or choose to be alone. Um, and there are definitely, there's a lot of nuance there, which is, um, you know, in the same way that people can be so lonely um, when they are surrounded by a lot of people, it is still possible to positively and proactively be alone. But like, let's say go to a class or something that where you learn something where you just don't know anyone, where you don't necessarily have to have conversations with other people, but it's still you being alone in a slightly different way. But I've just learned to kind of lean into what my mind is trying to tell me in terms of what I need in that particular situation. We're recording less than a week after Caroline Black's tragic suicide and this is something you have experienced because Rob, your husband, took his own life in 2015. After the news of Caroline's suicide broke, you shared a message on Twitter saying that you are reaching out to people who've experienced similar things and that you know that not everyone will always understand. Is that something that you struggled with, not having that support network of people who'd experienced similar things? Yeah, I mean, I think that when someone you love dies really unexpectedly, and especially a death like suicide, which is just incredibly complicated um, for a number of different reasons, 
it can be I mean it was really isolating not least of which because you might not want to talk about things but people definitely sure as hell don't want to talk about it with you and you feel like it's really difficult to articulate how you're feeling um, without especially with suicide for example without opening yourself up to people possibly saying things like oh but wasn't it selfish or you know I like just getting really angry about it and so on and I think that there's a lot that I think I did in that early time where it was just realizing that this was an extremely I was extremely fragile and that I needed to just basically be able to protect whatever was sort of left behind after all of that grief until as a time that I felt stronger around it um but what I realized was that while I felt very alone in the experience of it and I felt extremely solitary um, because I think what was happening was that I was a spouse surrounded by friends and family who hadn't lost their spouse. Um, and so to me, I felt like we'd all lost this person, but each of us had a different um, experience of what that loss looked like. And so one of the things that I did, um, because I didn't really want to go out and I didn't want to really socialize with people and I sure as hell didn't want to sit down and talk to people extensively about it, was for me the easiest way was to write about it because writing is something that is like, you know, breathing air to me. And it's uh, it's something that's also just been really safe for me in terms of being able to, especially like if you look at something like blogging, which is such an incredible medium because it allows you to say what you want to say without someone else, you know, chopping and changing your words. Um, and so it started with that, it started with a blog that I wrote. And even when I remember, like, so my old colleague, Charlie, like, I remember when I literally saw him as he was about to publish the blog. And I was just really scared because I just thought, um, what if people are really horrible about this? But even worse than that, what if, like, no one cares? Like, what if no one you know, is even bothered by this. And that would have felt so much worse. And I think it would have just compounded my um, my solitude in that. But something incredible happened, which was that all of these people, basically, because I kind of put my email address at the bottom of the blog, and I just said, look, if anyone's been affected by this, then just, you know, feel free to message me. Because I was able to sit in my bedroom on my own and reply to emails and to reach out to a community and a network in that way. But I couldn't actually go like if some if any of those people had asked me to meet for a coffee, I wouldn't have been able to do it. Um, and so in that first month, all of these emails that I got from people not telling me their own story necessarily, but just to say this happened to me. This is it's going to be okay. Like this is how this is me like a few years down the line, it's going to be okay. It will pass. Um, quite honestly, that was a lifeline because number one, it made me realize that um, I could be on my own in my house, um, but I can still reach out to a network and a community who is out there who has a who have a very similar sense of what that very particular type of grief does to you, um, but also is extremely compassionate and kind. And I feel that if you're trying to get that same connection, you know, as you go about your day you're just not going to get that. Whereas something like, you know, publishing stuff, the internet, social media, um, whatever people say about it, it has connected people who have felt very marginalised and very 
uh, and I use this in the negative sense, very alone in their own lives and, and alone in their own experiences. Um, and I think what that kind of enabled me to do was to be someone that could be alone sometimes at home and not have to leave and not have to do it, you know, um, go to an event where I didn't really feel um, particularly confident in conversing with people into someone that could pick and choose when I wanted to connect. You've spoken about feeling marginalised at the time and I suppose another element of it which you've written about a lot was becoming a widow in your mid-30s which not a lot of people experience. Yeah, I mean, I didn't really even clock that word until I had to go into my bank and to just inform them of my change of status. And I remember the woman who was taking my details was just really shocked and said, oh my God, but you're so young and this, that and the other. And I know she was saying it to be nice or rather, you know, to be kind, but it made me feel terrible because I was like, yeah, I, I know this, I know this, I know this thing has happened. I know that it's like way before my time, but I just felt like I'd kind of just then been sort of it. And she didn't do this, but I felt like someone had just kind of stood up and pointed a finger at me. And that was, yeah, that was incredibly isolating. And also because I realized that there aren't that many of us I mean, thank God there aren't that many of us, but that if I wanted to do anything, whether that was, you know, to date again, to um, like when I go to a house party and I don't know everyone there, and then they kind of find out what my story is, um, it is one of those things where because it's not very common, you do feel very alone in that. So there's a lot that I have had to do to um, create this sense of um, just being very sure and steady in myself and that there is a lot in my life that I draw strength from so that when something like that happens again or someone inadvertently like makes me feel like that, that it's okay because that's only one part of who I am. That's not, that's not the defining factor. That's not everything. There are like lots of other things. Um, and lots of other communities and lots of other labels that I have um, that are part of my identity. On the subject of labels, when the Emma Watson self-partnered idea sort of exploded last year, you wrote a personal piece for The Times where you wrote that you'd skipped ahead yourself in the relationship trajectory, being widowed at 34 and spending the next two years half-heartedly dating and that you did see a need to redefine the idea of being single. We're a few months on from that now. How do you feel about the self-partnered term? I mean, there were some amazing memes, and there was lots of, uh, like, Twitter did this really well in terms of um, making fun of it. But I think that in terms of the term self-partnered, I just feel like it, it is something, there is a distinction between... Um, being single and embracing everything that comes with that and saying that there is a different narrative to what we previously understood being single to be. So in this piece, I'm fairly sure from memory, I said something like um, that, you know, being single as is a viewed as a default um, status um, and that the there are some overwhelmingly negative connotations which is just that you're kind of sitting there on a shelf waiting 
for someone to partner up with you and validate your life. And there is a lot of validation that there is to be had in being single. And there is a lot of validation to be had in actively choosing to be alone. And I mean, I'm still kind of still half-heartedly dating and, and not, but what always gives me a good steer on whether or not I even go on a date with someone is this sense of of self and is this sense of, you know what, like, it, wouldn't it be amazing if I met someone who shared some of the same interests as me, who was kind, who was basically a partner in every way that a partner should be, but if that person doesn't come along, it's okay because I'm just going to carry on with my life and do the things that I want to do. Whereas I think previously, and I do still know people who do this, is that they literally put their lives on pause and because it, there are parts of their lives that they just don't want to begin until they've met another person. And for me, I'm just like, okay, well, you know, do whatever it is that you want to but I don't really feel like life should be like that. I think if there's stuff that, you, if there, there are places that you want to travel to, if there are, you know, things that you want to try, if there's something that you want to do to your living situation or whatever, you just kind of need to do it because it's right for you in that moment. And if another person comes along, you can work together around that. Like it's not, it, there's not this sort of, you know, sterile, fixed template or situation where you just need to kind of sit there quietly until this person comes along and then your life begins. And I just think that even when you do meet that person, and obviously I'm saying this from personal experience, is that things will still never work out the way that you think that they're supposed to. So if you're single, just do whatever the hell it is that you want to do because there is a time limit on some of that stuff. And definitely for sure, when you meet someone else, your life doesn't get easier. It gets brilliant in a in a great way, but it also gets a hell of a lot more complicated because you have to factor in this whole other human being into all of your plans. I guess it's that classic happy ever after narrative that doesn't really exist. Yeah, it, it doesn't. Meeting Rob as well, did that set a certain standard for what a real partner looks like? I mean, I've been very guilty of when I've been looking at future partners to just go oh well but Rob had this and they don't seem to have that and it's not you know he's not a comparison point or shouldn't be anyway for for people that I meet in the future and I do ca I do make sure that I catch myself when I find myself doing that but I think the biggest thing that I have learned from my relationship with Rob is um is basically how you want to feel in that scenario so whether or not they like the same music as you or whether they've got like different political leanings or whatever it is like it's it's actually completely irrelevant it's how they treat you as a person and how they make you feel about yourself as a person and the way that he made me feel about myself apart from I think like the fact that there was a lot of love in our relationship and that he made me feel very loved was like around self-esteem. So, you know, it's not like he told me I was like amazing every day. Well, he kind of did, but you know, it's not, but it's not like he sat me down. It was like, come on champ, aren't you great? It's more just that there were things, there's something about the process of someone loving like your really bad, the bad parts of you as well as the good that really does something for your self-esteem. And I think that if someone's behaving in a way that makes you feel just bad about the type of person that you are or your value or your worth, 
that for me is a deal breaker. Like, you know, I, I can, ha I can feel hurt. I can feel upset, but feeling bad about myself is not an option when it comes to, to being in a relationship with someone else. And I think that that for me, that kind of baseline of how a person should just treat you or be polite to you or just even respect you. I'm actually quite stunned at how many people go into relationships and continue relationships when their partner just shows such a lack of respect for them. Why do people do that, do you think? Do you think it's a case of them not thinking they deserve that much from a partner? With any relationship, you just get used to stuff. So I think when you're actually like living in the thick of it, you might not even see it anymore. Like other people around you might be able to see it, but to you, it's just become normalized. And I think it's very difficult sometimes to unpick, you know, what you think someone's behavior is um, on a bad day versus like how they actually are and how they're actually treating you. Um, but fundamentally, I would say by and large is that people don't want to be alone. And the prospect of being on their own is something that keeps people in relationships that they may not really want to be in and are definitely in relationships for a lot longer than they need to be in. But I mean, I, I try to empathize with that, but I have always been the type of person who would rather be on my own than be with someone who's treating me like crap. I found the whole self-partnered conversation quite interesting from an alonement perspective because alonement says that your first and last relationship is with yourself. So you are fundamentally self-partners or whatever you want to call it. Um, but the whole Emma Watson conversation has been around being single. What do you think? Do you think that you, obviously you've been married. Do you think that you can be self-partnered in a relationship? I guess it depends what the concept of self-partnered is. And I think that what I would say having been in a marriage and even like when we were going like you know before our wedding before we actually got married um like we didn't move in together for I think the first 18 months of our relationship and um for sure you know the first I, th I think we we were only living together for about six months before we actually got married um but I would say that having your own interests and doing your own things is incredibly important. Um, and just the people that I gravitate towards who are in long-term relationships or who are married are the ones that value their own time enough to allow themselves to have hobbies or to just even do stuff like go for dinner and maybe have the like knowledge that it's not okay to bring their partner along without telling you. And that's something when I was married, that was something I was really, really, um, really felt very strongly about in terms of, I mean, Rob was never the type of person that would go, Ooh, you're hanging out with your friends. Please. Can I come with you? Because that frankly just would have been really weird. And I would have probably said something like, Jesus Christ, like, don't you have your own <laughs> friends? But um, but it was something that I was really, really strong about because I just said, you know, just because I'm married doesn't mean that my partner comes with me as a default. And now the older I get, I'm like, actually, I find it supremely weird that people just bring their partners along and then don't tell you or just assume that like everything's okay. Because 
it's really not okay because you just can't catch up with each other in the same way. And I don't think that there, from memory, I don't think there was ever a point in my marriage, whether I was meeting a friend who was single or in a relationship or whatever, um, where I just assumed it would be totally fine or that I would even really want to bring my partner to stuff because I had my own interests before I met him and I continued those interests when we were together. Do you think that's something a lot of couples struggle with, that idea of doing things apart and maybe by themselves? I think it depends when they met. I think that people who met when they were really young, or I would say, um, you know, so like let's say they met at uni or uh, in their early 20s, I think that I've noticed that it's very difficult for them to do anything solo. Um, I don't think it's because they're incapable of doing it. I think it's just because a lot of their lives has been spent just doing something with a partner. Um, What I have noticed is that people who tend to meet their partners in like, let's say their thirties, I don't, they're a lot more likely to, um, to value their own time because I guess they've had to just adapt and, and deal with having their own time. I mean, my sister, I mean, she's in her early forties, you know, she goes away on holiday on her own. So she'll go away on a yoga trip and so on. And she's married with, um, you know, with a five-year-old. And that's something I definitely take inspiration from because the fact that, you know, she, she needs that. She needs that for herself. And it's not that she's just kind of abandoning her family. It's, um, it's something that she needs so that she can be a better partner and a better mother when she then goes back home. That's so key to alonement, that idea that you can go and spend some time by yourself away and come back to your partner or your child or your friends and be a better person to them. You have a career path that so many journalists aspire to, and I absolutely include myself in this. You were the UK executive editor of Huffington Post and then the global head of lifestyle. And You left that job, as you wrote about in your book, In Search of Silence, and for the past few years, you have been freelance. As someone who could walk into any staff job, what is it about freelance life that keeps you being freelance? I mean, when... When you say I could walk into another any staff job, I'm not sure. See, internally, I don't feel like that. Internally, I still feel like a bit of an outsider, which is kind of how I felt most of my career. So it's really nice to hear that I have a a career that people would want. But a lot of it has been graft and for sure being ambitious about stuff. But I think it's just been grafting away and just trying to do as good a job as I can. The thing with staff jobs is that I've gotten to a point in my career where there are things that I know that I need for myself, whether it's you know, around like my mental health, whether it's around the type of work that I want to do. And the, the reason why I continue to be freelance and I'm really enjoying it is because when I first started freelancing, so this was about two years ago, I was really scared. And I just thought, oh my God, I'm not going to make any money. I'm going to have to take a job that I really don't want uh, somewhere in a company. And it's just all going to go to hell. And actually what's happened, because I applied the same principles of, you know, just uh, working really hard and just trying to think a bit more cleverly around things. And what ended up happening was that I think that I'm currently in a period which is the most creative I've been in my career. Um, Because I am not weighed down by a staff job, I can work with anyone. And that to me has just opened up 
so many doors, but also just, I think, working with people from so many different backgrounds, from different countries, in a way that I just wouldn't have done um, in a company. So that that for sure is something that, that keeps me going, because I think that while there's a danger that you can stagnate when you're freelance because you're not, let's say, being appraised or you don't have training around certain things, there is something for life experience in terms of that constantly keeping you on your toes. But I think that um, it's it's it would be dishonest of me to say um, that, you know, everyone should be freelance and everyone should do uh, to should try it and be self-employed because it is really, really hard. And I am doing this off the back of having been in my career for about 15 or 16 years. So a lot of what I'm currently doing now is off the back of extremely hard work that I did in the first year of freelancing. Um, where I basically just didn't really have a day off and so on. So it's really hard. But having said that, it is it does seem to actually be paying off. And it means that I can be a lot more fluid and flexible around my personal life. Um, and it means that, most importantly, I don't have to sit there in a room and listen to someone whose opinion I really disagree with or to see them treat people in a certain way and just feel, you know, just horrified by it. And I just have to sit there in silence and put up with it because, you know, they're more senior than me or there are, I don't know, for di- diplomacy reasons or whatever. And the the removal of that, that aspect to my working life um, for me has been revolutionary. So if I ever went into a staff job it would have to be for someone who I admire and who could teach me something. It doesn't mean that there aren't some amazing editors or amazing managers out there, but I just know very specifically what I want from from a boss and from a manager. And also, I'm having like way too much fun freelancing and being on my own and not really being answerable to anyone to possibly go back into a staff job. What about the nature of how we work as journalists? We've both worked in the same office, although not at the same time. And it's like a lot of other newsrooms. It's open plan. You get distracted quite a lot. You overhear people's conversations. Was that something for you that was distracting or just not particularly helpful to the creative process? Yeah, hugely. I mean, I had a thing where, so last year I was doing some contract work for about three months, which required going into um, that very same office once a week. And it shocked me how different the levels of productivity were between what I'd be able to get done at home and what I got done in an office. And I would say, you know, for me anyway, productivity like went down like at least by about 50%. And I just thought, I just, I do remember having this one day where I just thought, I don't think I can ever do this again because, um, and I don't know how the hell I actually managed to get stuff done when I was there because there are just so many people like who want to have meetings or, you know, the kind of chit chat that you have or the ability to actually even focus. Like for me, I need, um, especially, for example, when it comes to writing, I need to warm myself up to writing, which includes like fanning about for about an hour. And then once I sit down and I start to write, that basically makes up for whatever I've been doing for that previous hour. But you can't really do that in an office. And I find that, you know, you have these like quiet rooms and so on. But open plan offices are just, to me, like sometimes they're a bit nonsense. And I think that they don't really, um, 
it's not like a one size fits all. And what works, for example, for a sales team is not going to work for an editorial team. Um, and I just, I just found that that environment, like throughout my entire career, actually, which has always been open plan offices, um, just is great for socializing. And I really feed off the energy when I'm there, but I just, I get like half of my work done. Do you think there's a sense of identity that comes with doing a staff job? I mean, I went into a staff job, so I freelanced, this was about, you know, 10 years ago. And then I I left freelancing 10 years ago to go back into a staff job because I felt that working as a freelancer made me really lose my identity and I didn't really have a lot of discipline around how I worked back then. And then that first job that I went into, which was working at Microsoft, then basically was the start of about eight years of working in corporations because I went from Microsoft to HuffPost, um, which was owned by AOL at the time. Um, and there definitely is a sense of identity, particularly if you work for a corporate, because they have, you know, they make a really big deal about culture and about values. And, you know, you feel like you're part of something when you're there. And there is something to be said for, you know, just like the injects that you have with your team and so on. And it and I do really miss being part of that. Um, but on the other hand, there are other networks that I've created for myself. So these are like other freelancers that I kind of work really well alongside um, or just taking myself to certain spaces where I feel a bit more connected to things. But yeah, I would say staff jobs do give you a sense of identity. Sometimes that can be really freeing and that can be really heartwarming and sometimes it can be really claustrophobic. So it's a spectrum and I think it just really depends on the type of company that you work for. So when you go and work in different spaces, are they co-working spaces, which seems to have taken off recently? God, no. No, I can't do a co-working space because I feel like it's basically a replica of an open plan office. So for me... um, it just does not work for me at all. Um, what I do is, so I have a, um, one of my work buddies is the um, beauty editor, Anita Bhagwandas, and we both work from uh, from a members club together. So she'll say I'm going on on certain days and we, and you know, I'll make sure that we have one day where we're working alongside each other. And we have this really good balance of knowing when to chat and when to kind of carry on with work. Um, and my sister lives in Barcelona. So it's one of those things where um, like I find being there is really good for kickstarting productivity because she's also a journalist. So we bat ideas around. Um, and that's definitely another space that I use. But really weirdly, um, it's also my gym. So um, so I kind of for any of you who've seen like dodgeball. It's kind of like the gym from dodgeball in that it's like there are lots of the same people that go there. I will bump into my friends that I've made through there, you know, two, three times a week. Um, And actually I have, I need to do this more, but I do find it really calming in the afternoons when it's really quiet working from there. Yeah, the uh, the bottom line is do not go to a co-working space. (laughs) Just you'll get all the same issues. It's just, yeah, for me, it just doesn't do anything. Yeah, it just reminds me too much of being back in an office. It's a tricky one because my problem with freelancing is that I don't notice when I'm spending too much time alone. Um, Because I really like spending time alone, um, I don't 
noticed that I need to probably leave the house and socialize with people and, you know, be a human. So one of the things is that my sister for sure is someone who will go, when was the last time you left the house? And do you not think probably you need to just go and, you know, call up like one of your mates or something and just kind of break that pattern a little bit. I think that being freelance has, being on my own has definitely made freelancing easier. But having said that, I need to be very aware that freelancing sometimes makes me spend too much time alone. And that's something that I have to catch because it's not a great state for me mentally when I've sort of been in the house for like too many days and haven't really left. It comes back to that balance that we spoke about throughout this episode. What's your advice for someone who struggles to spend any time alone and wants to get better at it? I have a friend of mine who who struggled with that a lot and asked me how I did it. And I just said, look, it's just don't make any big dramatic decisions around it. Like, don't book yourself in for a one week holiday somewhere. It's all about baby steps. It's all about really, really small things like, um, you know, trying to go for lunch on your own. Um, If you go for lunch on your own, go to somewhere that has a counter as opposed to sitting at a table where you feel a bit more self-conscious. Maybe booking a one night stay somewhere or a short weekend away and just making sure that you've got everything with you. So I find access to technology is really important when I'm traveling on my own. So just making sure that even like having stuff like your chargers around and just things that make you feel a bit more comfortable in that. Um, Or it could even be something as literal as spending a few hours by yourself in the afternoon, whether that's like going for a walk in the park even something like going to the cinema. Like the cinema was such a huge deal for me to to just go on my own. And once I did it, I just thought, oh my God, this opens up like so many possibilities. And I don't have to wait around for someone to um, share the same film taste as me. And this is great. Um, and I would just say that if it feels a bit uncomfortable at first, that's perfectly normal, but maybe just keep going with it. And then the next time, once you've done that lunch, Maybe book like a one night stay. If you've done one night, maybe do two. But to understand that if you kind of just like really push yourself out of your comfort zone, you're just going to hate it. So it's about just really gradually adjusting to it. I think that's really good advice. I think it is about those baby steps and you sort of reflex that muscle almost. Paula, thank you so much. This has been such a great Oh, Thank you for having me. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Alonement Podcast. And thank you so much to my guest, Porna Bell. Porna was one of my absolute dream guests for this podcast. And having listened to this episode, you'll understand why. If you loved this episode, please do rate, review or subscribe. It makes all the difference to help other people discover the show. Join me next Friday for a brand new episode. Until next time. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns.
Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at bowlandbranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns.